All right, welcome back, everybody, to Story Symbol Spirit, a podcast on how to make sense of scripture. My name is John McCambridge, and I am joined by... I'm Jackie Mitchell. Jackie Mitchell today. Jackie, mm-hmm. we're going to go through Genesis 14. Yeah. And so this is an exciting chapter about war and conquest and the victory of the people of God. There's a weird moment with a guy named Melchizedek. Yeah. It was a fun chapter it that is. we're going to go through today. So so, so stick around with that. But I, I do feel like I have to address something before we get into it. Um, we are here with our Dunkin' Donuts iced coffee. As per usual. And I'm just going to say, I'm going to put it out there. Okay. Because I feel like we haven't made this mandate yet. <laughs> if Dunkin' doesn't start sponsoring us, then I'm changing coffee providers. Where Where are you headed then? I don't know. What, what are our options? Tim Hortons? Tim Hortons is bad. Oh, wow. Sorry okay, so, to the Canadians so listening Hortons to this podcast. Not but I, yeah. No Canadians are going to listen to us. So they're just part of our international base. Thanks, Jackie, for that. Sorry, guys. Sorry, Canadians. But, but it is true. Like you and I started this podcast in order to get rich, and we haven't seen <laughs> uh, we haven't seen a single dollar from sponsors <laughs> so far. So I feel like we have to do this is something. Crazy. <laughs> right. Um is Duncan your favorite coffee right now? I think so. Or is so. it just that it's right next it's, to our church? Well, I think Starbucks is like if you're talking about chain coffee. I think Starbucks is better, but Dunkin's so much more affordable. And like this, like if you could see the size of the medium iced coffee that they give you versus what like the medium is at Starbucks, like just for the price point and like how big their servings are, I think they win. And here we go with you and your giant drinks again. I got a medium. It's fine. I didn't even get a large. It's not your 64 ounce smoothies that you're usually (laughs) walking in here with. Um, Our... Lead pastor Joel Kovacs had a podcast for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, he did. Uh, I was uh, I was a guest on it one time to talk theology, but I spent twenty minutes when we were talking about Sheets Coffee because he had done that he Sheets loved, Coffee passport thing. Yeah, he loved that Sheets Coffee passport. Remember, it was like one drink every hour, but he was trying to get them to give them him more sometimes too because he was like trying to bring it in for the staff too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he was negotiating yeah, with the he's general like trying manager. to get like extra like <laughs> sheets coffee. He was like, well, I'm not going to come back in that for the yeah. next four hours. So can <laughs> so I just can take I have my four, four coffees now? now? <laughs> and they let him do it. But what was the the coffee passport thing there? It was like, it was like eight bucks a month. It was crazy. It was like they had to have been like losing money on yeah. that. And you could get like soda too. Like yeah. once every hour. The sheets, when they open, what I've noticed, because you're from the land of Sheets, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I was pretty excited when they opened up. Like, people were, like, texting me, hey, congrats, the day Sheets opened <laughs> well, up. Well, you used to talk about it a lot. I Jane. know. I was I was hyping it up here. But what I noticed is that when they open, they kind of do, like, predatory things. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Where you, like they, like, literally, at, this is so true, in, like, my hometown, basically, like, Sheets would open up a new gas station across the street from an old gas station and that gas station would just be out of business in like six months yeah and here's why because when they opened the sheets next to our church they would their gas was like 30 cents cheaper yeah and they were like and they were like sign up for our sheets card and you always get 15 cents off a gallon for the first year yeah for the first year it was like i have to do that and so it was like it's like uh you know, Amazon yeah, just know. lost money for like 15 years and they gained all the market share by doing free shipping. And yeah. now Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. And there's a part of me that feels like that's not actually legal. I mean, obviously it is, but yeah. I don't know if it, I don't know if it should be. I know it's like that, like that, like independently owned gas station across the street cannot compete with that. And then I'm like, yeah, she yeah, like, yeah, love you're, it. You're on, you're on the side of the man. Jackie. I'm so sorry. Well, there was a, there was a gas station that was supposed to open across from us and it was on the leasing plans when we were building this building. Mm. And as soon as they found out sheets was going in, gone. They're like, never mind. They didn't open. I swear. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, well, all right, Duncan, this is your last chance. Okay. Or we're switching to sheets. Maybe so. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe that, maybe they'll sponsor us. Yeah. I feel like they've got deep pockets. So. Yeah. I mean, really, all we're asking for is free coffee. Yeah, that's actually we don't even need a sponsorship in that sense. We just want like a yeah. The the you real, know how influencers get like free stuff, and then they're like Lincoln Bio if you want to buy one. Yeah. but it's just like coffee, Lincoln I'm, Bio. I'm not a complicated man. Yeah, it's gonna be free coffee, and I'm <laughs> I'm I'm good to go. Our accumulation of wealth from sponsorships will come later, probably. <laughs> so, so for right now, we want we want free coffee. But if you are enjoying this podcast. Please rate and review on whatever platform that you listen on. That always helps us. And so today, before we get into Genesis 14, Jackie, where have we left off Genesis 13? Yeah, so we've been following Abram, mm-hmm. um, who was called out of his hometown um, to go to 
the promised land, right? Mm-hmm. Canaan. Um, and so he's on this journey and he is with his nephew Lot and they've kind of been bickering. Last episode, we talked about his herds were kind of bickering with Lot's herds. And so Abram says, let's split up. You choose where you want to go and I'll go the opposite direction, yeah. essentially. So they've just split up and Lot goes towards Sodom. Yeah, he goes east. Yeah. Not good. Not good. And he goes towards Sodom, who it says they're wicked. Yeah. Not good. Not good. And so here we start to see what what happens mm-hmm. when you split away from God and Lot's going to get caught up in some bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he's going to find himself, you know, uh, Abram's nephew Lot on, on he's going to find himself entangled in a multi-sided war in the midst of powerful kings. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this chapter, we're, like I said, we're going to be introduced to a character named Melchizedek or Melchizedek. Yeah. And this is interesting because a lot of people, even if you're not that familiar with the Bible, you have heard of Melchizedek and you've kind of heard of it, of this guy in kind of a mysterious way. Yeah. Um, but you know his name. And the reason I say that's interesting is because there are two verses dedicated to him. Yeah, he kind of gets thrown in with like some crazy figures like right. Noah, Abraham, mm-hmm. Isaac, Jacob. Yep. And and like we've been uh, talking about, when something seems random and weird in the Bible, mm-hmm. our instinct, because of the way that, that modern literature is, our instinct is to skip it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that must not really matter. But mm-hmm. in the Bible, if it's weird, it really matters. Yeah. So this episode with Mel- Melchizedek, it's going to seem like he pops in out of nowhere and then leaves out of nowhere. And so if you're just reading this, your instinct is to be like, okay, that was weird. Let's let's get on with the story. But what we're going to see is that Melchizedek becomes a very important character in terms of Christology, mm. the study of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so he is a figure that the later authors, both of the Old Testament, one of the psalm, the psalmist, David, and uh, the author of Hebrews mm-hmm. maps onto Christ yeah. to, to show a foreshadowing of Christ. And so because of that, uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to introduce this character. We're going we're gonna to see him for a second. We're going to go through the narrative. And then next week, we're going to go through a whole episode where we talk about Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. And we talk about who he is and, and why he matters and where some of this Christology comes from and yeah. why he pops up in the Psalms and then why he pops up in an entire chapter of yeah. the book of Hebrews, yeah. right? Two, two lines on this guy. And so we'll we'll get into all that, but like you said, we ended last episode with Lot, the who's the current seed. Yeah, the, the, heir, the heir, because Abram has no children, and that's his nephew, mm-hmm. and he splits off, mm-hmm. which means that he has actually removed himself, which we'll see in chapter fifteen. There's a new heir. Yeah, uh, even before they have kids, and and that's because Lot has split away mm. from Abram, and and therefore split away from the promise of God, and so. Um, Abram's in Canaan amongst the oaks of Mamre, right? And oak trees, mm-hmm. right? We've actually, surprisingly enough, spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. because part of our hermeneutic is this symbol aspect where everything in creation has some kind of reference beyond itself because God created the world. And so everything in the world has the fingerprints of God on it. And so everything in the world has some kind of transcendence to it, right? So trees are not just trees in the material sense that we think about them. Mm -hmm. And they're not just important because of what they do materially and physically for an ecosystem. They they mean something. Mm -hmm. And you can see what a tree means just in the way that it is, Mm -hmm. right? That a tree begins on the ground, an oak tree, and then it goes, if you've ever seen giant oaks, they go way up into the skies, into the heavens. And then... Uh, visually, it explodes out into a crown. Mm. Uh, and if you stand underneath that crown, you're protected. Mm-hmm. You're protected from the sun. You're protected from weather. And so when people would set up camps, a lot of times they would do so under trees mm. because of that kind of, of of protection. And so these trees come to represent God in the sense that it represents the protection of God and being under God. And so the garden in Eden was filled with trees. The Ark of Noah was made of trees. Abram already spoke with God at the great tree of Moray at Shechem, which we went through last episode or a couple episodes ago. Mm-hmm. And Abram built an altar there. And then we can move forward. We're going to see that the tabernacle and the temple is full of wood, mm-hmm. which comes from trees. 
And so now Abram's resettled amongst the oaks of Mamre, amongst these trees. And that's a pretty good indication, at least symbolically, that something is important is going to happen here with God. Yeah. And so why don't we pick up and see where and how it's going for Lot now that he's mm. over in the wickedness of, of, of Sodom. Yeah. Right. So we've got we've got some we've got some <laughs> names, Jackie. I'm gonna try. Are you up for it? I'm up for all it. All right, all right. We'll let's, see. let's read one through four. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch was king of Elisar, and Kederlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, and Beersha, king of Gomorrah. Shanab, king of Adamah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bala, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kederlamer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. Right. So one of the things we talked about in the story of Abram is that his life is going to be a microcosm and a foreshadowing or a type of what is going to happen to Israel. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's going to become the father of Israel. Yeah. Right? And we'll see this as we go forward. And so as you then move on and you read the story of the people of God, both in terms of like the, the exodus and then the wandering in the wilderness and then the conquest of the promised land, um, all that they're going to have to do is actually going to happen in a microcosmic mm -hmm. way in the life of Abram. And the reason this is important is because those people, they, they know who they come from. Yeah. And these stories about Abram are being told, and they're supposed to see what they're supposed to do by evaluating the life of Abram, mm. right? And so um, they're supposed to embody this. But what we're going to see is that they're going to fail in doing this, and we're going to talk about some of that today. Yeah. Um, but just to understand, you know, there's lots of names here, which is kind of confusing. But mm. the reason that these names are important and the reason that the genealogies are important is because this story goes all the way back to the prophecy that Noah gives his sons after Ham rebels mm -hmm. and points forward from there to what's happening here. And then that points forward to what's going to happen to Israel in the promised land. And so what we're going to see is eventually Abram is going to defeat Kederleomer. Mm. But Kederleomer, before that, is going to defeat all of the same people that God is going to tell the Israelites, that mm. they have to defeat in order to go into the promised land in Numbers and, and Joshua and, and, and Judges and First and Second mm. Samuel, right? So let's talk about the prophecy of Noah that he gives to his son Shem and that he gives to his son Ham. So in Genesis chapter 9, Ham rebelled against Noah, mm -hmm. and he tries to take Noah's anointed position of authority and we talked about how the robe that Noah wears uh, represents his, his kingship and his priesthood and, and the authority that God has given him. And so when Ham goes into his tent and he sees that the robe is off of his father Noah, he comes back out and he tells his brother. And I think what we can infer is that the robe that indicates his authority has been taken off because he's in his tent relaxing and naked. And so Ham comes out and tells his brothers that they can take that authority now. Yeah. Just like the humans in the garden were going to have access to the tree of the mm -hmm. knowledge of good and evil, but they wanted to take it for themselves mm -hmm. first. Uh, the sons of Noah are his descendants. Yeah, they'll They're get the heirs. They'll get that eventually. They're going to get that authority, right? Yeah. But Ham sees the ability to take it now, mm -hmm. and he tries to do that. The other sons, including Shem, they don't take the bait. And so they, they refuse to do that. And so the, the sons of Ham, which are the Canaanites— are, are prophesied that mm -hmm. they're going to be ruled by the by the offspring of Shem. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're going to see that right here, okay? Um, like I said, this is difficult because these are names. And the assumption in the Bible, because of the time that this stuff was written down, is that you would be able to map the genealogies onto what's happening in this battle. Yeah, you know these people. Yeah. They're like historical figures in your, your family's lineages. And you know how yeah. genealogies work. Yeah. Right? Which we don't really. We right. don't really use genealogies, and so especially not ancient genealogies. And so we need to go back through this to pick out the significance of what's happening here in terms of these battles. And so um, Kederleomer— mm is the king of Elam, hmm. according to Genesis 14.1. Uh, and so Elam is actually the firstborn son of Shem. Okay. When you go back to that genealogy, yeah. right? Hmm. And he's allied with 
uh, Arioch and Tidal, the, the, the kings of Elesar and Goyim, and they are ruling over all of these other people. Mm. Uh, and, and so the people that they're ruling over is, is you know, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. Mm. So these are all Canaanite city-states. Mm-hmm. So the Elamites, who are the sons of Shem, are ruling over the Canaanites, who are the sons of Ham. What does that sound like? Sounds like the prophecy. That sounds exactly like the prophecy in Genesis right. 9. And so, in a sense, even though Keterleomer is a pagan who's mm-hmm. not worshiping Yahweh, uh, everything is as it's supposed to be. Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. Because the sons of Shem, Elam, is ruling over the sons of Ham, mm. Canaan. And so, you, you see how this maps onto that prophecy and onto the genealogy? So, why don't we then go forth and read 5 through 7? Yeah. In the 14th year, Keterleomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Sheveh Kirathaim, mm-hmm. and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to An Mishfat, that is Kadesh. And they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Right. So Keterleomer, the king of Elam and son of Shem, right, mm-hmm. the offspring of Shem, goes to take on this rebellion. And mm-hmm. as he goes on his way, he fights and he defeats the Rephites, the Zuzites, the Emites, the Amalekites, and the Amorites. Now, as you read the Bible, you will come to see that these people, especially the Rephites, are... Guess what? Nephilim. They're giants. Yeah. These are giant clans. These are the the Nephilim. Yeah. So when we did our episode on the Nephilim, what we talked about was that this is they're they're giants in the uh, in the the ritualistic sense, mm. right? Because there's this demonic worship that's happening mm-hmm. where the priest king is reproducing with a temple prostitute while embodying whatever God they're worshiping. And so the offspring that happen from this are two-thirds God, mm-hmm. one-third human, mm-hmm. right? Because the king is a God, the the God that he's embodying is a God, mm-hmm. and then the temple prostitute is a, a human mm-hmm. or, or some kind of, you know, uh, formula like that. And so uh, Keterleomer, who is the Elamite and the offspring of Shem, he just goes down, he routes all these Nephilim. Yeah. These Rephaim, right? And it doesn't go into detail. Also, all we're supposed to see is that here's Keterleomer destroying the giants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we mentioned earlier that what is happening here in the life of Abram, what we see here in this battle is a foreshadowing of what will happen to the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. So when we get to Numbers 13, after wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, they're going to come close to Canaan, and Moses is going to send spies to go explore the land. Mm-hmm. And so in Numbers 13, 27 through 33, we can read the account Mm. of what happens when the sons of Abram, who are also offspring of Shem, but actually receivers of the promise of God, Mm -hmm. they're going to see who's in the land and they're going to get freaked out by it. Yeah, they're scared. Right? So in, in Numbers 13, 27 through 33, it says this. They gave Moses this account after they went into the land. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak, the Anakim, who are other who are giants, right? They're, they're Rephaim. Mm-hmm. The Amalekites live in the, the Negev, which, right, that was the, the Amalekites are in this mm-hmm. verse as well. Um, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites, which are also mm-hmm. in this verse that we just read. They live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Mm-hmm. So Caleb knows the story we're about to read. Yeah, And he says, yeah, they are giants. They are the Nephilim. Well, I, we, we went in there and we saw them. But guess what? We can take the land. Mm-hmm. Um but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than mm-hmm. we are. And they spread among the people a bad report 
about the land that they had explored. Mm -hmm. And they said, the land we explored devours those living and all the people we saw there are of great size. They're giants. We saw the Nephilim there. So uh, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. Mm -hmm. So this is the bad report that the Israelite spies come back and give, give Moses and the people. Yeah. And so the spies go into the land and they say, we can't go in there, there's giants. The mm -hmm. Nephilim are in there and they're gonna kill us. And so that's true. So the question is, why is that a bad report? Because they've already been given the commandment. The, the, the sons of Shem are supposed to have dominion over the Canaanites. Exactly. And how do we know that the sons of Shem can have dominion over the Canaanites? Because of Genesis 9. Yes. And because Keter uh, Laomer. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Right. So what we're going to see, Keter Laomer, or what we just saw, he's already exemplified this. Mm. Right when the Canaanites rebel, including these these Nephilim and these 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 giant clans, uh, Keterleomer routs them. Mm. Well, he's the son of Shem. Now he's a pagan. He is not the receiver of the promise. He's mm. not in the line of Abram. Right. He's he's but he is a Shemite, mm. and uh, he's our, and so he goes in and he just smokes these guys. And so the fact that the Israelites later are scared to do the same, it means that they forgot who they are. Mm. It means they don't trust the promises of God. They've already seen what happens, and yet they're afraid. Mm. So uh, we see even more of this. In Deuteronomy 2.10, it says the Moabites are the descendants of Esau, which are going to be in, in the line of Abram, mm. uh, from the same line of Shem. And the Emites used to live here, people strong and numerous, and they were as tall as the Anakites, who mm. are giants. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephites, giants, but the Moabites called them Emites. Horites used to live in Seir, but the descendants of Esau drove them out. They destroyed the Horites from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did in the land the Lord gave them as their possession. And so what this is saying is that your cousins, the Moabites, mm. right? So, so uh, the Israelites are the offspring of Jacob, but his twin brother Esau has offspring who are the Moabites. And so your cousins, the Moabites, they already slayed these giants. Yeah. Right? And so has Keterleomer, who, who's a, a son, a offspring of Shem. So what, what are you afraid of? Yeah, this has been done many times. This has been done before. And then in Deuteronomy 2.19, they, they go again with different people. It says the Ammonites, who are descendants of Lot, so cousins of Israel as well. When you came to the Ammonites, uh, when you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war for I will give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. Mm. That too was considered a land of the Rephites, the giants who used to live there, but the Ammonites called them uh, Zamzumites. They were a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites, so mm. they're giants. The Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites who drove them out and settled in their place. The Lord has done the same for the descendants of Esau mm -hmm. who live in Seir. When he destroyed the Horites from before them, they drove them out and have lived in their place to this day. And so again, your cousins, the Ammonites, the offspring of Lot, they've already slain these giants. Mm. They've already conquered these giants, right? So what are you afraid of? It seems, in fact, like everyone in your family is a giant slayer except you, <laughs> who are the actual receivers of the promise, right? Yeah. Uh, and so that's why it's considered a bad report. Mm. Not because they're lying, but because they're afraid. Yeah. And what happens here in this story with Keterleomer and Abram, uh, which we'll see here in a second, as well as then what happens with the Moabites, mm -hmm. who are also Shemites, sons of Esau, and the Ammonites, who are Shemites, sons of Lot, uh, they've already done this. Yeah. So, so you're sitting here and you're saying, we're not going in there because we're afraid of the giants. Yeah. And, you know, Caleb and Joshua are the only ones who are going to say, no, 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 no. We know this story. Mm -hmm. We go in there, God will, will allow us to be giant slayers mm -hmm. too. In fact, that's what he's called us to be. And so we come back to this story and you have these giant clans and then you have the Amalekites. And so when we get to Israel, we're going to see the Amalekites attack them when they leave Egypt. Yeah, we'll see and them be again. And a, a thorn in their sides. And you have the Amorites who are going to have beef with the Israelites as well. Mm -hmm. And so this story shows that the sons of Shem have been dominating and defeating these clans these, of Nephilim yeah, and demonic, Canaanites yeah. forever. Mm. 
all the way back to people who weren't even worshiping Yahweh. Yeah. But were in that line of the prophecy of Noah and, and, and the sons of, of, of his son, Shem. And so why are you afraid? Mm. You know, why are you giving this this bad report? What What, what is, what is the, we have a motion sensor lights in here. <laughs> it's just turned off. And so, so it's so just the, the ring lights, lights just now. Turned off, and so I don't know exactly what to do about that. That's fine. Um, Maybe when I read the next passage, <laughs> go and move your hands around this and is, stuff. <laughs> yeah, this is spiritual warfare. So producer be, Jerry's not here. I know. He's which, out. Is a, which is a problem. I know. We need producer Jerry. We're flying blind here. <laughs> um, and so what, what you're going to see is that after they give this bad report, mm -hmm. this generation of people who have come from the Exodus, they're going to say, we don't want to go in there because we're scared. And you know what God's going to say to them? Mm. Fine. Yeah. You don't get don't to go, go in. in. Yeah. You'll die in the desert. And they do. Mm. And you read that story. And if you don't connect it to this, you'll be like, well, that's kind of rude. Yeah. Like they see giants and they're afraid. Of course they're afraid. Yeah. And yet God gets so mad at them. He makes them die in the desert and yeah. not go into the promised land. It's like, yeah, but it's because it betrays a lack of faith in something they've already seen God do. Right. And again, we've seen God do this before. He's letting them get what they say they want. Mm -hmm which is to not face that, to not live up to their calling. And he says, you can do that. But how much worse is that to not trust God and to, and to do what we think is best? It's, I mean, they don't get the promise. Yeah, and we talked about that a couple episodes, the wrath of God. Mm. Sometimes the wrath of God is we say we want something, and he says, fine. Yeah, have it. You really want it? Go ahead and take it. Mm. And so um, it's not that this, it's not God being overly harsh, mm -hmm. like you shouldn't be afraid of giants. It's, yeah. The Nephilim are in there. So what? Look at Keter Laomer. Look at Abram. Look at your cousins. Look at the sons of Lot. Look at look at all that the Shemites have been doing all this time. They've already been dominating these people, just mm -hmm. like was promised to you. So I'm telling you to go in there and do the same thing, and you're scared to do it. Yeah. You don't have faith in me. You don't trust that this is what's going to happen. Interesting, because this shows the importance of genealogy. Yeah. And the importance of the narrative structure of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's do 8 through 12. Okay. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adamah, the king of Zeboiim, and the king of Balah, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Keterlaomer, king of Elam. Tidal, king of Goyim, Emraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Yeah, so now it gets tricky because mm. Keter Laomer is doing what he's supposed to do. And he's actually living according to the prophecy, even though he's not a worshiper of Yahweh. Uh, the He is a son of Shem and he's over all of these Canaanites, which yeah. is exactly what Noah said would happen. Uh, but then the Canaanites rebel. And so he goes down, he, he routes the Canaanites and the, the cursed sons of Ham and their kings, right? Mm -hmm. Especially the king of Sodom is who we're going to see here in a second. Sodom is a Canaanite city-state. And so Sodom and Gomorrah, they're, they're, they're humiliated, their goods are taken, they're plundered, and they're defeated, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't even say how the battle went. It just says that they, they, got, you know, they got smoked. And so the problem where it gets complicated is that they capture Abram's nephew. Yeah. Right. Why? Well, cause it feels like he's maybe not supposed to be there. <laughs> feels like he was in the wrong place in the wrong time. Cause what we saw last episode was it doesn't seem like he consulted God on where he should go. Yeah, He, he saw, looked around and he said, that looks good over there. I'm going to go there. I'll take it. Yeah. Well, what we see from Abram again and again is he says, God, I'll follow where you lead. Mm -hmm. But Lot was like, I'll go over there. Mm -hmm. And it seems like he may have known that Sodom was wicked. Yeah. So now yeah. he's stuck there in a place he shouldn't be. And so uh, uh, he, he's in, we know he's at least in Zoar, mm -hmm. which is right next to Sodom. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to see is later, he's going to get caught up in the wickedness of Sodom again. And when we see him yeah. later, he seems to be in the city. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, um, our intern who's helping research for this, Alexander, he... Uh, showed me something that was very interesting where it said that because Lot was so wealthy, right, which is why he had to split from Abram, mm -hmm. if he's in the city, 
he's actually holding some kind of position of authority in the city. Yeah, he's not like just a, a refugee in the city with nothing to his name. Right. And so mm. we'll see this later when Sodom gets turned to salt, mm-hmm. right, uh, by, by, by the judgment of God. Uh, but a good allegorical lesson here is that to, to split away from God, mm-hmm. c- to connect yourself to rebellion against God, it does not lead to freedom and prosperity. Mm. Like all of these deconstruction stories promise mm. that you hear today, right? It leads to judgment and it leads to ruin. Because as we've talked about from the beginning, all goodness, all life, all blessing is all connected to God. It's all yeah. his grace. And if you uh, disconnect yourself from that, you're disconnecting yourself from that love and that grace and that peace and that shalom and all of those blessings, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Lot starts to feel that here because he splits from Abram, goes towards Sodom, goes towards the wickedness, and all of a sudden he and his household and his possessions are captured Yeah. by Keterleomer. And so what is going to happen to Lot? Mm -hmm. That's the question, right? So let's do 13 through 16. A man who escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Yeah, so we learned from last chapter that Abram resettled between Bethel to the west and Ai to the east under the oaks of Mamre, and Mamre is an Amorite. Hmm. Um and we discussed the significance of the trees and all of that. But but if you look carefully at the way this is described, it says it says uh Yeah. Abram the Hebrew. Yeah. So again, you gotta go back to the genealogy. Yeah, because we're like, yeah, we got that. But what does Hebrew mean? Mm. Well, it comes from one of the offspring of Shem, who is Eber, mm-hmm. right? E B E R is the transliteration. And so the it says that Abram the Eberite, Abram the Hebrew. And so even though the sons of Shem, which Keterleomer is, are supposed to dominate over the Canaanites, uh, the promise goes through the line of Eber. Yeah. Right? And so Abram and Lot are Hebrews. Mm-hmm. And so it goes through him. And so, <laughs> so uh, uh, Abram the Hebrew allies with Canaanites. Mm-hmm. Right? So you've got an Amorite. Uh, you've got you've got Amorites, Mamre, Eshkel, and Aner. Mm-hmm. And so these are Canaanites. And you might look at this and you might say, no, now hold on a second. I thought the Canaanites were supposed to be the antagonists, right? Yeah. Because that's kind of what we see in the story and that was the promise from, from Noah. Uh, but here w- what we're going to see is a very, very important theme of the Bible going forward. They mm. are Canaanites, but guess who they've allied themselves with? Mm. A man of God, Abram. Abram. And so... Paul's going to talk about this in in depth. Mm -hmm. It is not, nor has it ever been, about ethnicity, Mm -hmm. tribal ethnicity and bloodlines the way that we think about it. It has to do with allegiance to God. Mm. So when we get to the conquest narratives, um, which people get upset with because the people of God are supposed to exterminate the giant clans, Mm -hmm. right? Um, What this means is that they have to get rid and destroy these clans, right? That could mean the death of these people, mm. but it could also mean the repentance of these people. Mm-hmm. If they repent and leave their idolatrous worship and they, they cling to Yahweh instead, that also is a way that the Nephilim get wiped out, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so um, you start to see that here, where Abram goes on a mission— with Canaanites mm-hmm. to defeat someone who is defeating the Canaanites. Yeah. And it's like, how does that work? And it's like, well, because they're allied to the people of God. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and that's really what Paul's going to talk about over and over again. Yeah. When all of the Gentiles of the world now have the opportunity, all the pagans yeah. can be grafted into the family of Abraham. And the right. early Jewish church struggles to understand that. Yeah, absolutely. And so Paul will say, this is nothing new. Yeah, exactly. He's going to say there's nothing new. That's why he talks so much about Abram. Yeah. Right? Um, And so Abram and his Canaanite allies take 
a ragtag group of 318 men. Yeah, they just throw that in there. 318 men who had been trained and born in his households. This gives you a, an idea of the breadth of his household. Yeah, so his household must be crazy, right? That's why, it, <laughs> you know, that's I mean, crazy. There's, he's probably settled in Mamre with 3,000 people yeah, when you wow. include servants and mm. women and children and stuff, right? Because he has 318 men of fighting mm-hmm. ability. Um, and so they win and they bring back the possessions and they bring back Lot, who was captured by that army. And so another pattern here is being set. Um, mm. I will say that to have 318 fighting men in your own household means that you're a powerful sheik. Yeah. That has thousands of people under your yeah. care. Lots of wealth, lots of protection, all that stuff. Um, and so we should we should note that and we should know that Abram is not some like, you know, weak, meek and mild old man. Yeah. Right? He's powerful. Yeah. Um, but still, how does a small group of 318 men defeat what seems to be the most powerful army in the region? Yeah, they they pale in numbers compared to Keterleomer's army, it seems. Right. So remember, Abram's life is a foreshadowing of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so when Israel takes the promised land, uh, what's the first battle? Jericho. Jericho. Yeah. And how do they win against Jericho? Do you remember? They march around the, the city. <laughs> they march around the city seven times. And, and then the walls yeah. fall down. And the point of that story is that it's not their military might. It's mm-hmm. not their military acumen. It's not their strategy. It's God. Mm. God wins the battle. So how do 318 men defeat Kedrileomer's army, who's just routed all these giant clans and Canaanite kings? God. We talked about this earlier when we talked about um, the wickedness following um, Cain and Abel, mm-hmm. where, where it seemed a pattern um, became clear of might is right. Mm-hmm. Like strength is what gets you um, to be righteous or, right. or a good person or a powerful person. And God, time and time again, says, I'm not picking the most powerful and I'm not picking based on military strength. Right. So here's another example of that. Yeah, he tells them as they're wandering through the wilderness before they settle the promise. And he's like, hey, just so, just so you guys remember, I didn't pick you because you were the most numerous yeah. and you're the most powerful, right? In fact you're the least numerous and you were slaves mm-hmm. and you were helpless. So why, why do you get all of these things? Mm. Because I choose you. Yeah. And I'm That's God. it. Yeah. So again, when we think about salvation and the grace of God, it's not new. Why are we saved? Because of God. Mm. It's not because of us. It's not because of our righteousness. It's not mm-hmm. because of our good deeds or our good works or anything like that. It, it is the grace of God in the yeah. same way here. Right. It's not that, well, you know, Abram, I mean, there's only 318 men, but he's just so good at at being a a military strategist that he defeats this army who just went roughshod all over the They just defeated several clans. (laughs) It's because it's because of God. Yeah. And you start to see that. Now, um, in when the people of Israel have the promised land, the most powerful that they ever become is under Solomon. Mm. And they actually are a powerful nation at that point. Mm-hmm. When Solomon is king, they're very wealthy and they are exercising quite a bit of dominion over that region. And then Solomon falls away from God and guess what happens? They fall as well. They fall mm-hmm. and eventually leads to exile. Mm-hmm. So just like your strength is not how you get there, it's also not how you maintain it. Yeah. And if you disconnect from God like Lot, then mm-hmm. this is what's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the pattern starts to get set here. And so Abram goes down, he defeats this army, mm. right? And he actually, um, the, the, the directions, you know, the, the directions that it shows here in terms of where he goes is important because it shows he goes all the way from Mamre, which is south of Hebron, all the way up to north of Dan, all the way up into modern day Syria, north mm. of Damascus. Mm. And so he starts as a foreshadowing to lay claim and take dominion over the promised land, mm-hmm. right? He goes, it's like 175 miles wow. of land that he goes and, and, and conquers with these 318 men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at least in its initial form, this shows the conquest, right? Mm-hmm. So again, when we get to the story of the Israelites being afraid to go into the promised land, uh, it's not that they shouldn't be afraid. It's that they already have seen this. Yeah. Um, and so we start to, f- to find that at least in its initial form here. And so then we get to this strange story 
of a priest king named Melchizedek in verses mm. 18 through 20. So these are the only two verses that Melchizedek is mentioned until Psalm 110. Mm-hmm. So let's read that. After Abram returned from defeating Kederleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a 10th of everything. And that's it. Yeah, that's all on Melchizedek. So the, the very next sentence is about Abram's dealing with the king of Sodom. Mm-hmm. So Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere and he seems to disappear into nothingness. Mm-hmm. And so this short story, like we said at the beginning, becomes incredibly significant theologically. And so like I said, here's what we're going to do. Let me just run through the narrative. I'll pull out some key points here. And then next week we'll do a whole episode on Melchizedek because he gets referenced in the most important messianic psalm in the Old Testament, which is Psalm 110. And then he has an entire chapter dedicated to him in the book of Hebrews Mm -hmm. from this episode that we just read. And Jesus will quote that psalm as well about himself. And I'll mention this a bunch next week, but Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Mm. Uh, And so very, very, very important, right? Uh, But... Uh, we have to do a deep dive on that. Mm-hmm. And so we'll, we'll we'll do that next week. We'll stay somewhat zoomed out here, but let me just summarize. Keterleomer and the kings that are with him route the Canaanite kings, including Sodom, which is close to where Lot is staying. And so Abram, the Hebrew, hears that his nephew Lot, the Hebrew, uh, is, is in trouble. And so he takes his army, 318 men, and he defeats Keterleomer's army and he rescues Lot. And on his way back, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of God Most High, who is Yahweh, Mm -hmm. meets Abram and gives him bread and wine. And he blesses him, and he blesses Yahweh, God Most High, and then Abram tithes to him. Mm -hmm. So a tithe is 10%, Mm. right? And so Abram tithes to him, and there's a lot going on here theologically and historically. Uh, which we'll get into next week, but I just want to point out a few things narratively and thematically here. First of all, he comes out with bread and wine. And so bread and wine can be traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. in creation because God gives humans wheat and fruit. Yeah, we talked about that early on. In the garden, right? And so uh, wheat is taken and made into bread and fruit is fermented and made into wine. And so it goes all the way back to the very beginning and it becomes symbols of priesthood and kingship. Mm-hmm. Uh, bread is the food of priests, which mm-hmm. will become clear in, in the Mosaic covenant because in the, in, the ta- in the tabernacle and then the temple, there's something called the show bread, mm-hmm. the bread of the presence of God. And only the priests can can set only the priest can make it mm-hmm. and only the priest can eat it. Mm. And so bread becomes the food of priests and then wine becomes the food of kings in part because wine symbolizes blood. Mm. And we'll see as we go through the Old Testament that in order to be a godly king you must be willing to spill your blood for your people. Mm. And so you sit down on your throne and you drink wine as a king. Mm. And so priest is the food of I'm sorry, bread is the food of priests and then wine is the food of kings. Mm -hmm. And then bread also symbolizes sustenance. Yeah, we'll get a lot of references to that. Mm -hmm. And wine symbolizes celebration. Mm -hmm. So Abram and his army have just finished a dramatic battle. And so Melchizedek, priest and king of the God Most High, Mm -hmm. comes out with bread to refuel them Mm -hmm. and wine to celebrate with them. Yeah. Right? And he blesses Abram. Mm. Why does a priest of the God Most High bless Abram? Because he's following God. He's his chosen one. His chosen one. And so if you are aligned with God, you have to be aligned with his people. Mm-hmm. And so Melchizedek blesses Abram because he is he's a king of a Canaanite city, Salem, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about next week. That becomes Jerusalem, by the way. Um, but he's also the priest of the God Most High. So he's a Yahweh worshiper. So here he sees the man of Yahweh mm-hmm. and he blesses him, gives him bread and wine 
And then Abram responds by tithing. Yeah. So Abram's response to Melchizedek is, is to give him 10% mm-hmm. of what he has. And in our current moment of redemptive history, which is the church, which is a part of redemptive history, by the way, mm-hmm. um, this is exemplified and in, in it's carried through in our practice today, right? Yeah. We are called to tithe to God. Mm-hmm. Now, people like to argue about this and they don't love the fact that, that there's a financial implication mm-hmm. to following God. But there is, and, and what I want to point out in this verse, there always has been. Yeah, even before some of the commandments will get directly about tithing. And I think that this is also gracious of God because God has blessed us by giving us life in yeah. heaven and earth. <laughs> yeah. And so we bless God by giving him 10%. By trusting him. Yeah, that's the tithe. I mean, that first and foremost, that is what the tithe represents. Mm-hmm. First and the best, the first fruits, 10%. And so Abram is righteous. And so... Uh, this is not, as we've seen so far, laid out in the law. Yeah. Right? But there's something about the righteousness of Abraham that makes this practice natural, this thanksgiving offering to mm-hmm. God of giving 10%. And so the 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 ins and outs of it are not yet elucidated like it will be in the law mm-hmm. and what we have access to today. But here you see tithing. And, and again, you know, what what I will say about this, especially if you're involved in a local church— um, I look at this story and you trace this idea of tithing through the Bible. And in my opinion, I don't think it's optional. Mm. I think it is a, uh, a called practice of the people of God. Mm-hmm. And you see that all the way with Abraham. Abraham is the father of our faith. Yeah. And you see him tithing to the priest of the God most high, mm-hmm. almost in just an instinctive, natural way. Yeah. Right. So this has to become a part of our practice of gratitude and thanksgiving and worship. And so um, there's our initial introduction to Melchizedek. And we'll talk a little bit more next week, a lot more next week, about why he matters even more than what we just talked about, right? Mm -hmm. Why does he pop in and then pop out? And then why does the psalmist uh, talk about the fact that that has some kind of messianic implication? And then why does the book of Hebrews say Jesus is is the high priest, uh, and to understand that, look at Melchizedek. Yeah. He doesn't say, look at Aaron. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, look at the Levites, mm. who is this whole history of priesthood in Israel. And uh, the author of Hebrews says, don't look at them, look at Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. And, 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 we'll talk about, and we'll talk about why. But for now, uh, there's another interesting episode uh, here at the end that we have to cover before we, before we move on. And so let's read, uh, I think all the way to the end, 21 through 24. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods to yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Hmm. So the king of Sodom offers Abram spoils, which is natural in this state of warfare. And Abram says no. Yeah. And so there's three reasons mm-hmm. that, that I want to talk about why Abram says no. The first one is a practical reason, which he spread, which he spells out here, right? Mm-hmm. He says that, uh, remember why we thought it was a bad thing for Lot to go towards Sodom? Yeah, because they're wicked. Yeah, they're wicked. Yeah. So he does not want to be beholden to the Sodomites. Yeah, I'm not going to owe you anything. He does not want to owe them anything yeah. um, because he knows how the wicked operate and he, he's not going to be in the debt of them. So, you know, Abram is smart and he's shrewd. Mm-hmm. So the first is a practical reason. The second reason has to do with patience, which we unpacked at the end of last week, right? God already promised Abram all of this Canaanite land mm-hmm. and all of these possessions. And so Abram says, I don't need it from you, wicked king of Sodom. Mm. It's been promised to be my, by my king, mm-hmm. God most high. So I'm not going to accept it from you. I'm going to wait for God to give me what he says he's going to give me. Mm. Um, when you look at the temptation of Jesus Christ in the desert, mm-hmm. the third temptation in the book of Matthew, which is the culmination of the temptations that Satan puts on Jesus, he says, stand up on this mountain and look at everything. Yeah, I'll give it to you all right now. Mm-hmm. You can have it. And Jesus says, no. Mm-hmm. Well, why does Jesus say no? Because he's already promised 
He's the king. He's the king. He's going to get it anyways. Yeah. God's going to give it to him, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't need Satan to give it to him. He doesn't need the wicked one, the evil one to give it to him. And so the, this, again, in, in, in the episode of Abram is a foreshadowing of that. Abram foreshadows this by saying no and by saying he trusts God. And so even this temptation can't can't shake this. Yeah, that's it. That's the faithfulness that Paul will talk about over and over again. Yes, this is biblical faithfulness. And so far, we've seen other biblical characters struggle with this. Right. We've seen Cain struggle with this. Right. And we will see many people struggle with this again and again. So right. this is nice to see. It's refreshing to see someone say, no, I know I know what God's promised me yeah. and I'll wait for it. The faithfulness of Abraham, mm. right? It's one. It's like you said, that's why Paul points out Abraham again and again in terms of biblical faithfulness, mm-hmm. right? Because there's not, there's actually not a lot of better options yeah, as you go forward true, in yeah. the story, right? Um, and so those are the first two. The, the third and final reason that he declines to take the spoils from the, uh, from the king of Sodom is because the spoils, you know, are actually from Keterleomer, right? Mm. That he defeats the the army of Keterleomer, uh, who has who has defeated in this series of battles, the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. Well, when we get to the conquest narratives, and God spells out how they're supposed to act when they take the land from these Canaanites, one of the things mm-hmm. he's going to say mm-hmm. is that when you defeat the Nephilim, when you defeat the Rephites and the Anakim, when you defeat these giant tribes. Uh, it's first and foremost spiritual warfare. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to tell them, when you defeat those people, you don't take their stuff. You burn yeah. it, right? You don't take their stuff. You get rid of it. Why? Because it's it's demonic. It's tainted. Yeah. Right? And so these are the holy people of God. And so you don't take what has come from their idolatrous worship mm-hmm. that culminates in reproduction with demons and a worship cult that reflects that. Everything is tainted. And so... Um, if, if somebody attacks the Israelites, like a Canaanite tribe attacks the Israelites and the Israelites win, they can have their stuff, mm. but not when it's the giants, because that stuff is tainted, mm. right? The, the, the conquest of God's people is first and foremost, spiritual warfare. Mm. And so these particularly demonic tribes, their stuff is not to be possessed by the Israelites, Saul is going to get in trouble about this. Big trouble. Right? He takes the stuff of one of these giant clans, and uh, I believe that the prophet of God says, what do you, what yeah. do you do? why do you have this stuff? And he says, oh, I was going to sacrifice it to God. Yeah, it was for worship. And Samuel will go on to say, well, isn't faithfulness better than sacrificing? Right. Because what he's saying is he's saying God doesn't want this stuff either. Because he told way. you not to. So you can't do something wrong and then say, well, I'm going to use it for... Right. I'm going to use it for worshiping God. Yeah. Right. So so Saul gets the kingship taken away from him mm-hmm. because of this kind of stuff. And if you're not plugged into this spiritual aspect of it, then you're just going to think God's being overly harsh with mm-hmm. Saul, right? Well, yeah. he took some stuff. That's what happens in war. It's like, no, it's not. Because it was pr- it, God commanded them that you don't take that stuff from those people, mm-hmm. right? You get rid of it because I am fighting against those demons that, that, that rule over them and that have tainted all of all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so those are the, I, I think, the three main reasons why Abram refuses the, the um, offer of the king of Sodom. And so finally, you see that Abram's purpose of all of this was to rescue Lot, who's his nephew, who, who's a Hebrew. Um, and uh, when he does this, even the wicked mm-hmm. get blessed by it, Right. So I maintain, theologically speaking, that one of the most confusing things about being a Christian in, in this faith tradition is the common grace of God. Mm. The crumbs of the blessing of God fall even to the wicked, that he blesses his chosen and the people that are faithful to him, and yet the world benefits from it. Yeah. Right? So the Sodomites and, and those of Gomorrah and all of these Canaanite kingdoms, they benefit from the fact that Abram is being faithful to God. Mm. The world, the nations, are blessed through Abram. That sound familiar? Yeah, absolutely. Genesis 12, that's Mm. part of the promise, right? And so um, in this event, the king of Sodom and and his people have an opportunity to repent. Mm -hmm. That's true. They see what Abram has done. They see what happens when the people of God are faithful to uh, the people of God Most High, people of Yahweh, are faithful to him. 
And so they can repent and come alongside, uh, which reminds me of Nineveh in Jonah, right? Which, yeah. which we went through a, a few months ago. Um, when Jonah goes there and he says, you know, you guys are wicked, but if you turn, God will spare you. And they do turn and God does spare them. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so the judgment of God uh, uh, will come upon Sodom and Gomorrah soon, but this episode's supposed to show us that it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, they can they can claim allegiance they to can God turn. as well. And so the the crazy scene that leads to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, what we're going to see is they become even more wicked. Mm-hmm. Right? They don't repent. They don't turn back to God. They keep doing what they're doing. They get worse and worse, and uh, they get turned to salt. <laughs> yeah. But they have an opportunity for repentance, and they have lots in front of them that should encourage their repentance, right? But mm-hmm. but they don't do it. Yeah. So we can wrap up chapter 14 here. And like I said, next week, we'll, we'll get into Mel- Melchizedek and we'll get nerdy about that in terms of history and mm-hmm. like who Melchizedek is and what Salem is and what his name means and, and uh, why he goes on to become such an important figure in terms of uh, biblical Christology. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, crazy, pretty crazy chapter, right? Yeah. The, the, and, and you see how interconnected the Bible is. Absolutely. The prophecy of Noah is where all of this starts, mm-hmm. right? Shem rules over Canaan. And so the sons of Shem are ruling over the Canaanites. They rebel. And so the sons of Shem put them down, Kedrileomer mm-hmm. and the Elamites. But then uh, refuge is found in Abram the Hebrew because he's God's chosen. Yeah. And so Abram demonstrates true faithfulness. Um, he, he, he starts to have dominion from, from the south of the promised land all the way up to north of Damascus. And uh, we see that that uh, Kedrileomer has defeated before this all the people that Israel is going to have to go up against, mm-hmm. right? And so when Israel comes up to that, they get scared, and that's why God gets so frustrated with them. Yeah, when they're supposed to take the promised land, right? They're scared to take dominion. They don't trust God, even though they've already seen this story before. Yeah, Abram had faith, and he hadn't seen what was promised to him before. Right, and here are the Israelites. And they won't do it. They've already got a prototype for what it's supposed to be like, and they don't have enough faith. Right. So Keterleomer defeats all these all these tribes, all these giant clans, seemingly easily. And then Abram takes 318 men and defeats Keterleomer. Yeah. And so the Israelites are the offspring of Abram. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to act like that. They're mm-hmm. supposed to know that. They're supposed to trust like that. They're supposed to see that story and map it onto their own story. And so only Caleb and Joshua are the ones who aren't scared. And so they're the only ones who end up going into the promised land mm-hmm. with the next generation of, of, of people after wandering around the wilderness. And so um, they're, they're the ones who hear this story and they believe and they have the faith to go into the promised land and those who don't die in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, this is a, an interesting way to end this is to talk about how you know we, we had a, a series a while ago called um, Tune In. Mm-hmm talking about hearing the voice of God on Sunday mornings here at 514. And the point is, a lot of times we wish that God would speak to us. Mm. And here, what you see is that God has spoken to them. He's shown them this pattern. And yet the Israelites are not going to see it. It's hard for them to follow. They're not hearing it. Yeah. They don't have, they don't have that faith. God does speak. Most of the time, uh, we're not tuned in, right? So this moment is supposed to be a paradigm that the people of Israel will see and then act accordingly. Mm-hmm. And instead, when they get to the promised land, they're not going to think of Keterleomer. They're not going to think of Abram. They're going to think those are giants and we're scared and we don't think we can take them. Mm. And God's going to say, well, I've already shown you that you can. What else do you want? Yeah. Right. Give us a sign. Yeah. I have. I have many times. <laughs> Speak. I yeah. have. Show yeah. us. I have. Right. And and this is something that we all struggle with in our lives. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So this is the beginning of the life of Abram becoming the paradigm through which the people of Israel are supposed to live. And and of course they struggle with that. And we struggle with that, even though we are now also sons of Abraham grafted into the family. Right. Yeah. Um, and so next week we're going to talk Melchizedek. And we're going to talk about the King of Salem and priest of God Most High and why these two lines of, 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 of random, seemingly random story become so important mm-hmm. in the, the, the leading up to the Messiah, Jesus. So 
Who would have thought Genesis 14 when we're talking about Jesus so much already? I know, right? Right? Yeah. So, so again, uh, a lot of us haven't read Genesis 14. Yeah. Not really. Haven't studied it. You know, we, we don't know what to make of it. And yet, when you read the rest of the biblical story, you're going to see it's actually really, really important. And you can see there's no excuse to say, well, Jesus is the really important person, so I'll just read like the New Testament, that's about him. <laughs> well, here's Jesus in Genesis 14, so you got to read that too. Right, right. At least at least in order to understand like who he is yeah. and what he's doing. Yeah, we get you a know? fuller picture of him. You can, you can claim him to be the Messiah. You can read about his life. You can mm-hmm. take his commandments and you can follow him. And in that, you can live a faithful life, but there's so much more available to us. Yeah. It's just hard because it comes from these genealogies, the prophecy of Noah, Mm -hmm. the sons of Shem and the sons of Ham and the Canaanites and the conquest and the life of Abram and some weird guy named Melchizedek. And it's all confusing and hard. But if you can start to map those pieces over, uh, you know, redemptive history— then and that culminates in Jesus, then it makes everything so much fuller and richer. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful, right? So you got anything else today? That's it. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us and we will see you all next week as we discuss Melchizedek on Story Symbols Beautiful.